Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah and I am your host for today and I'm joined once again for more Disney fun games and magic by Barry. How are you doing today, Barry? Are you melting yet? <laughs> oh, am I ever. What a nice, cool, breezy day online. Like <laughs> 35 degrees. Um, for those listening outside of the UK, the UK doesn't really do air conditioning or any sensible mm-hmm. heat really in the winter or aircon in the summer. And honestly, I don't know how this country used to like be the biggest civilization on earth. I don't know how they did it because they can't even like heat or like cool their own homes. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. Uh, yeah, otherwise, I'm great. Uh, I love this movie very much. And I'm very excited to get into it. Yeah, I this is a this is definitely a film that I have a lot of love for as well. And yeah, just a, a time context, just in case, because obviously, like people will be listening to this at some point in a few months' time, because we record these things a bit early. Um, it is currently very, very hot. Uh, we are in the middle of a heat wave. We are we have to turn our fans off, obviously, for recording. So. Um, if we over the course of the episode sound like we are slowly melting, and that's probably because <laughs> we are, um, yes. but we're going to do our best to to hold it all together. It's also weirdly stormy around where I am as well. So if there's some kind of thunder and well, you wouldn't hear lightning, but if you <laughs> if there's some thunder in the background, uh, then it's not my stomach rumbling. I promise it is. Uh, and there's some thunder in 101 Dalmatians, so it actually would be quite fitting, I think. There is, exactly. Let's hope it comes in like just as we're talking about that moment of uh, Cruella's entrance. I think we'll, uh, we'll definitely get to that and we will certainly talk lots about Cruella uh, because you know we love our villains on this podcast and Cruella is one of the best villains. Um, just before we get kind of like started properly, um, you had a very adorable watching experience of 101 Dalmatians this time around. Um, do you want to tell us who you watched this film with? <laughs> yes it's, it's funny because um once anya who is our lovely dog came into our lives the first film we watched for the podcast at that point when she came was lady and the tramp uh and now we're back with 101 dalmatians and she uh she uh, <laughs> i think she liked it i mean she I, she didn't pay as much attention this time because it's so much hotter um mm. she was too busy sleeping however there were a number of scenes that we'll talk about especially the twilight bark which is like five uninterrupted minutes of various dogs barking throughout england um <laughs> she went wild for that so she was definitely a big fan the opening like sequence has a bunch of barks uh this film has so much barking and i swear every single film i've watched since she has joined the family uh has been nothing but barking i swear like all films now it's not even english or whatever language they're in it's just bark <laughs> it's just dog um, but yeah, she had, yeah. she had a good time. She she definitely barked along at the Twilight Bark. Maybe she was gossiping with them. Well, that's it. She's she's communicating. She was concerned for the the well being of the puppies, and she wanted to help out. So you know, she's just uh she's just doing doing what any good dog would do, and she mm-hmm. is a very very good dog. Um, yeah, it's funny how like you when something like that like obviously you now have a dog that you're suddenly very like conscious of when there is like barking in a film and you would like that you would not have noticed i never ever thought about it before, that before. And now. yeah because she, she's not much of a barker really the only thing that makes her bark is when other bar- dogs in the neighborhood start barking and she can hear it or when i mm. hear barking on tv otherwise she's she's chill uh <laughs> but yeah no I, I i never thought of it before uh, but every time, I swear the last like 10 films I've watched all have various barking sequences and she goes nuts. 
<laughs> is this the last of the Disney dog films for a for a little while? I guess until we get to uh, Fox and the Hound, but I don't remember there being that much barking in that. And then Oliver and Company has got some dogs in. I'm trying to think if there's any others along the way Oliver now. Oliver and but... Company. <laughs> I think um, that's yeah. Yeah, they're both 80s. Um, I don't think there's any dogs in the 70s. Although I... no, there is a dog in the Great Mouse Detective. Um, but I can't remember if that's 80s or 70s or not. Um, but there is a dog in that. Mm, Whether it okay. passed, I guess we'll have to see. Maybe there's a dog in Sword <laughs> in the Stone now that I have a dog. Maybe there's just going to be a dog in every film upcoming. <laughs> we shall see. But yeah, it was, it's, it's definitely been a bit dog-tastic over the last <laughs> couple of weeks, but absolutely yeah. no complaints from me or you because no, we both love dogs. Yeah, and we both love this film as well. Just a, you know, a little hint for where this conversation is going. Um, so let's let's get into talking about 101 Dalmatians, which is our film for this week. Um, so you all know the plot, but I'm going to read it out anyway. Um, when a litter of Dalmatian puppies are abducted by the minions of Cruella de Vil, the parents must find them before she uses them for a diabolical fashion statement. I really like the phrase diabolical fashion statement. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> There's something um, if, really interesting about vanity in Disney villains uh, mm, that I think will be really exciting to talk about when we get to it, because she's not the first who wants to do evil just so she can look better. Uh, and she's Yeah, not definitely. Either. Definitely. Uh, That's a really interesting thought, actually. And I, it, I think it's certainly something that is kind of epitomized with with Cruella but yeah you de- you definitely see it in other in other villains and particularly female villains I think mm-hmm. um unless there's there's one that I'm missing but yeah we we will spend lots and lots of time well, talking Gaston, about Cruella <laughs> but we haven't got there yet yes yeah that's very true i think he is maybe the most image obsessed of of all the disney villains but yeah. that's that's many decades away and uh we've we've got this lovely film to talk about before we get there so um as always you you know what's coming. I know what's coming. Barry, you are going to give us all the things we need to know, the history, the facts, the all the other interesting stuff about this film. Um, yeah, take it away. It's I'm ready. Be wild. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was a author. Her name was Dodie Smith, and she wrote um, a book about 101 Dalmatians in 1956, kind of inspired by her own experiences. Uh, she had a Dalmatian, and a friend of hers uh, made just like a joke of a comment that it would make a really interesting coat. <laughs> Which, I think that's what every dog or animal owner wants to hear uh, from a friend. Like, wow, your animal would like make a really nice scarf um, or a nice piece of clothing. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Dodie Smith was inspired by that, uh, that little anecdote. And I guess she turned her friend into Cruella DeVille. I don't know if Dodie Smith and this woman were still friends after that. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, I haven't read the actual book, so I'm not sure how pretty the picture she paints of, of Cruella is. But anyway, that book was published in 1956, uh, and Walt was a big fan of the story, and they picked it up. And it's actually interesting, because this is probably the first time where the author, when she wrote it, she was like, I really hope this becomes a Disney movie. <laughs> and, and it did, because obviously a lot of the stories before this are... Uh, based on, well, Lady and the Tramp, the other darn one, was an original story. Um, but all the really previous ones have been either adaptations, well, actually, they were all adaptations until Lady and the Tramp, but they're all adaptations of books, for the most part, that came out quite a long time ago, or like old fairy tales. Uh, so this is kind of one that had, when she was writing the book, Disney in mind, which is which is pretty interesting, which kind of just speaks to 
the impact Disney has at this point and how much of a household name they become in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was kind of a, a time, like we were saying in the 50s, it was a, a lot of growth was happening in the studio. Um, obviously, this is the film came out in 1961, so really the, all the history here is still in the 1950s slash the end of the 1950s. Um, and it's a big time of growth. Disney's starting to get really into TV, doing loads of TV specials and uh, shorts and, and things like that. And also the, the Disneyland theme park is happening. And so Walt was spending a lot more time with TV um, and the theme park and things like that and merchandising and, and all of that rather than focusing on the feature films. Um, and in fact, a lot of people were saying, you know, why even bother with animation? It's so expensive and it's difficult to make your money back and it's just becoming more and more expensive. Uh, why bother? And obviously, Walt was having none of it because, you know, the whole reason he got into his creative world was was to create these animations. Um, so they, they charted course, they kept going. Um, Sleeping Beauty did not make a lot of money. Uh, well, it has now. You know how it is. You know how it is with Disney. We've <laughs> talked about it many times. They've released them 75 times and it eventually makes hundreds upon hundreds of millions. Uh, but it was such an expensive film that they ended up losing a lot. As I said last time, uh, they ended up cutting a lot of staff and it was kind of the first time they posted a loss uh, in like a decade. So they weren't doing that well financially animation wise. Otherwise, they were doing well and, and, and they were still um, searching ahead. But similar with uh, Sleeping Beauty, where Walt kind of gave the reins to or Ivan Earl, uh, and he kind of had creative vision over Sleeping Beauty. Uh, this time, Walt handed the reins to the wonderful Bill Pete, who we haven't talked about yet, but he has been there uh, since the beginning. He joined the studio in 1937, and he started working as an in-betweener, uh, which we talked about way back in Bambi uh, with Tyrus Wong, who was kind of created those amazing backgrounds uh, for Bambi and he started as an in-betweener as well and just as a reminder what that is is essentially in between each movement is another like 20-30 images because it's it's you know you have to create a new uh, drawing with each and every frame and so there's hundreds and thousands of, of pieces of animation that go in so these are the people that do those like slight minuscule movements and draw these characters over and over and over and over and over and over and over it's very um time intensive and you're pretty much at the bottom of of the hierarchy in in Disney in that way if you're an in-betweener. Um but he was a really great story guy and and Walt wanted, you know, a really great story. Uh and he certainly delivered that and he made a big impact in Dumbo as he was going in his career. He had he kind of created that idea of Dumbo in the bath and in the mom uh Ms. Jumbo washing him in the bath and all of those beautiful images and he created that and kind of as he was going throughout he was raising going up and up the ranks and he basically worked on every single disney film um up to this point so he was given the reins to make this happen and not only was he responsible he was kind of the only one responsible in terms of story uh and often when making story in disney it's a huge collaborative process uh and there's always back and forth and it's a group of people coming up with these storyboards and in the direction of the story but if you go back and, and look at archives uh the storyboards that bill pete created are pretty much identical to 101 dalmatians when it was finished so he basically had complete creative control and he, it, it's entirely his story uh which is kind of the first time that's happened because disney's a very collaborative kind of deal and i know i believe there's one person credited for lady in the tramp but it was still a lot more collaborative this is kind of the first time it was a true like solo act um and what's interesting about 101 and many things about it, but one of the things is, is this the first time we have a truly contemporary Disney film? 
uh, we see Roger and Anita flirt and be physical with each other and kiss and hug and, you know, all of that, which we haven't really seen uh, up until this. Corella smokes cigarettes. We haven't seen cigarettes. We've seen cigars uh, back in Pinocchio, but that's kind of an old-timey thing. Cigarettes feel more modern, if you will. Uh, and the dogs and people watch TV, which we haven't seen either. So, you know, these are uh, people living in the present day in 1961. These are, you know, it's a very contemporary set film. It's the first time, really, it's it's a truly modern film. Again, Lady and the Tramp got close because we started seeing like a telephone and things, but that was still probably like early 1900s. So this is the first uh, truly contemporary movie. Uh, and it's also the first one that isn't really a musical. Um, Mel Levin wrote the song Cruella de Vil, which of course is legendary, but really it's the only song in the film except for uh, Dalmatian Plantation, which is a few seconds and, and a lo lovely little rhyming song at the end. Uh, and in fact, he wrote a different song for Cruella de Vil, um, but they felt that it would be more appropriate to have a sort of more modern, more bluesy, jazzy uh, kind of song. And they went with that and obviously it worked very well. Um, and he had also written the absolute banger that is the Canine Crunchies ad uh, that they see on the TV, <laughs> uh, which I'd like to think was inspiration for Inside Out's Triple Dent Gum uh, <laughs> ad because it's, it's very catchy and, and, and it's it's a really good fun. Uh, and the score was by George Bruins, who we've talked about before and has basically done almost every Disney score up to this point uh, and really brought in uh, this new kind of modern jazz and really owning to the like current sensibilities of the late 50s, early 60s that no other Disney film has really done before. Um, and as we can kind of tell, we're looking at 101 Dalmatians, especially in comparison, if you're going chronologically, looking at Sleeping Beauty before, they look very different. Uh, truly like night and day. I don't think if you were like did a blind test of someone who's never heard of Disney and they watched these two bad films back to back, I don't think they would think that they would belong to the same studio at all. Um, that's not to say... I think it looks bad. I think it's actually a really beautiful film. Uh, but it is certainly very different. Uh, and one of the reasons was that Disney didn't have a lot of money left uh, after Sleeping Beauty. And they were looking at new ways to save money and save in the animation process. Uh, so generally speaking, when it came to animation at Disney, uh, artists would draw in pencil. And then these drawings would go to the painting and ink department, which was consisted of tons of people. Um, and their jobs were to put cells, which are these clear plastic sheets, uh, on top of the paper and essentially hand trace using multiple colors. And then they would turn it over and then they would paint it again. So it's painted on all sides and everything. And then that's basically what happened for every single frame of the film. So it's a really uh, difficult job because you can't actually put your hand on the paper so you kind of have to keep your hand up for like hours on end it's it's a really intense job uh and it's also very expensive and really time intensive and it takes a lot of time uh and a lot of money to get done um so they adopted the xerox process and xerox copiers were pretty new at the time and this would save them a lot of money by essentially instead of copying things by hand they would copy uh via machine uh and they found that it didn't really make a difference in terms of the quality of animation, although there was a very long and heated debate with serious animation folk in the industry of whether it feels as authentic because you do lose certain aspects of it. Um, but they actually tested the process in the dragon fight in Sleeping Beauty. Um, so 
it, it is indeed very effective because it's the dragon scene in Sleeping Beauty is exquisite, and you would never know that they basically switched the entire way of animating in that movie all of a sudden. Um, and they also tested the process with a short called Goliath 2, uh, which was a lovely little thing with a bunch of elephants, and they found that essentially it, it moves the same way. Um, so they went ahead with Xeroxing, and I believe to this day they still use a very similar process. So it, it you know, it stuck with them for well over like 50 years. So it was a really uh, cost-effective and smart way of doing things. Unfortunately, for the ink and paint department, uh, they found themselves out of a job, which was quite a shame because they lost, you know, a real. A lot of people who knew Disney or, or worked with the company would say that like those people were the top in like the world at what they did. Uh, so it was a shame to lose them. But, you know, when big companies make decisions, they don't tend to care very much about people with well-being. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you, you ultimately you're there to, you know, as a big company or any company, you're there to make money. And if making you can make more money while spending less, that's obviously what they want to do. Um, so you lose a certain level of subtlety in the machine process, but in many ways, it's pretty unnoticeable. Uh, and when you save a lot of money, you just go for it. Um, and the Xerox process was especially useful this time around because all the dogs were black and white. And obviously, it's uh, they didn't have color copiers back then, although they certainly do now. Um, but the animators themselves were really thrilled with the Xerox process as it allowed their uh, drawings to be completely theirs. And a lot of the times they would be annoyed because they would lose some of their drawing when it got painted in, in the ink department because they're not the ones painting it. Uh, and they would actually have their assistants uh, kind of work to like clean up their images as much as possible. Uh, and there's some stories of some of the animators getting very angry at their assistants because they, they felt like they lost uh, some of the qualities of the image. But that's a whole other story for those, those poor assistants. Um... <laughs> So most of the uh, nine old men worked in 101 Dalmatians. Uh, Wolfgang Reitherman did was the director and did the Twilight Bark sequence, which was Anya's personal favorite. Um, and it's actually filled with cameos because Wolfgang um, really liked reusing animation. And it's certainly something well, he directed uh, Sword in the Stone, uh, Jungle Book, and I believe Robin Hood as well. He directed quite a few of the films. Uh, and we'll definitely talk about him reusing things in Robin Hood because he basically reuses the entire dance sequence from Snow White in Robin Hood. Uh, but this sequence has a whole bunch of cameos of the dogs of Lady and the Tramp. Uh, you can see Jock, Peg, Bull, and at the very end, you can see Lady herself, which is fun because they are very much in America, but somehow have been transported to London, but you're having such a good time. It's uh, it's not something you're going to think about. <laughs> maybe maybe the effect of the Twilight Bark is so strong that it can be heard around the world. Who knows? Um, <laughs> so then Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston uh, worked on all of the dogs. Uh, Frank did the scene with the stillborn dog, which is a really powerful and really interesting scene because a lot of 101 is so light and, and joyous. Um, and that was a really quite a dark moment. Um, and then Ollie did the scene where Perdita hides from Cruella under the furnace, just as a some examples. They obviously worked on a lot more. Um, and then Milk Call animated Anita and Roger and some of the other humans. And he was very influenced by the voice actress Lisa Davis, who voiced Anita uh, when it came to drawing her. A lot of the times, the people who voiced would be quite influential because you would work with them to kind of develop the character because the voice 
often influences the the way you draw. And also they did live action work again, uh, which further kind of enforces the image you're seeing and that, that eventually makes itself, it makes its way to the page. Uh, and Mark Davis, this was his uh, last work on in a Disney film, and he was responsible for Cruella de Vil. Uh, not only did he design her, but he actually was the only person, he single-handedly uh, animated her throughout the entire film, which is quite rare, because obviously there's a very large team of animators, and it's not just these nine guys uh, working on it. There's there's dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of, of people who are involved in bringing Disney films to life, but he was the only one who, uh, who worked on Cruella in it might be his best work. I mean, it's it's some of the best work in, in all of animation. It's really extraordinary stuff. Uh, there's rumors that it was, uh, that Cruella was influenced quite heavily by Betty Davis, which I think you can see um, in a few other, like, golden age Hollywood actresses. But really, I think most of the inspiration comes from the voice actress, Betty Lou Gerson, uh, who is Cruella and very much personifies that role. But it's interesting because we've actually heard her voice before. Uh, we brought it up in Cinderella, but she is the lovely, smooth, uh, warm voice of the narrator at the very beginning of Cinderella. So a very different uh, <laughs> role, I would say, in uh, Cruella de Vil. A uh, really interesting thing about the vehicles in the film is that they actually created uh, model cars from cardboard and they would Xerox these. Um, so they would actually, so they would basically get the car to move. They would create this whole structure where they could like drive in a way, move these, you know, cardboard vehicles. Uh, and then they would Xerox those. And then that's the image that made it into the film. So you have a whole other kind of dimension and this helps save a lot of money because cardboard is an awful lot cheaper than animating. Um, but you can't tell. And it's actually a really seamless process and kind of gives extra dimension to the cars. And also there's a moment when Cruella kind of crashes her, uh, vehicle into the snow and the snow is actually um, a sandbank that they Xeroxed into the film. So <laughs> Xerox had a lot of really interesting the, 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 the process that gives you kind of a lot more opportunity to do different things besides just, you know, a pen and paper. Um, then we have Ken Anderson who Ivan Earl was all the backgrounds in Sleeping Beauty and Ken Anderson was kind of the forefront in bringing the style of 101 Dalmatians to life and as you can see from 101 it's a very different style um, it's a lot more angular a lot more abstract and certainly a lot more modern uh, than Sleeping Beauty which is very medieval and gothic and this is very much of its time this is very much a, a 60s film you know it looks like jazz almost it's a really um very distinct vision i think um and a lot of people really love it but one person that absolutely hated the look of 101 dalmatians was walt disney um <laughs> he really longed for the more uh romantic and classic style of every other film that had come before and 101 is certainly one it's certainly a departure and i wouldn't say it looks cheaper although i think everything on earth compared to sleeping beauty looks cheaper um so i don't think it's a detriment to the film but it certainly does look very different um and he basically only forgave ken uh very close to his death he was really angry at him for like i think it's basically six seven full years they basically hated each other uh because of 101 dalmatians however uh upon its release critics absolutely loved it it was the best critically received film since dumbo which is uh almost i think exactly 20 years before uh, and it was a huge box office success. Success. It earned $14 million on its first release, and I think 
in total it has like 300 million or so at the box office like most of them do but it was very successful at the time and they didn't cost them anywhere near as much as sleeping beauty uh and it was really kind of the example of the right film at the right time there are moments in disney when they're struggling but a big film comes whether it's cinderella or snow white or uh now 101 dalmatians that really kind of help the studio get back on its on its feet and really start to surge ahead uh, it has no Oscar nominations, which I think is quite disappointing because the music is spectacular. It did, however, win a BAFTA uh, for Best Animated Film. So that's something. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, a little, a little, I say. It was quite a while uh, <laughs> of the history of uh, 101 Dalmatians. I'm genuinely shocked to hear that Cruella de Vil was not, as in the song, was not nominated for an Oscar. That is a great song and it's a great like standalone song as well even though it's about a character in the film it is insane isn't it and i mean it's it's really one of the legendary songs in in film history in in music mm. history i mean everyone knows that tune everyone knows that song it is really quite extraordinary because and it's weird because uh roger is a musician so you mm. would kind of expect from that, it, it sets up, like, the first thing you kind of see of him is him at the piano, like, coming up with songs. And you would think that this would be a film with a whole bunch of songs, but it's the least musical in terms of songs. There's a lot of music, obviously, but in terms of being an actual musical, it's the least musical of any Disney film so far. Yeah, and that that's that's an interesting point, actually, because, like, we've kind of... I think where we spoke about it a lot, and I think it was Alice in Wonderland, which has the most songs in it, yeah. um, in that that was fairly unique in that most of the songs were kind of formed part of the plot or mm-hmm. they were very much like the the things the things that were happening on screen were it almost... Being sung about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like being sung about. And I think the, the use of Corella Deville in... 101 is is different um but it is still it is still similar in that sense in that it is it's part of the plot in that we see Roger writing the song and performing the song and it's also about a character in the film so it's not just like a nice song that kind of accompanies yeah. the you know and it, and is relatively unrelated it is it is part of the story that he it is a songwriter yeah, and and he is and he is the writer of that song. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit meta in a way. It's like because obviously that is now a very iconic song, and and what I think a lot of people really remember about this film is that song. Yeah. Um. So it's interesting, and also it's in the film that that song becomes like a big hit, doesn't it? As well, <laughs> I think it's like being yeah. played on the radio at one point. At the and end, yeah. <laughs> I think that's really funny because like. Obviously, we know who Cruella is. We're watching the film, but like at the end, these other people just listening to this song on the radio and being like, "This woman sounds <laughs> terrible," but they have no idea who she is, but just well, really enjoying the song. Yeah, and and you infer from that moment that that is kind of what allows them to afford to have at the end 101 Dalmatians, uh, because they <laughs> sing about basically building an, uh, a whole farm where they can have all their Dalmatians, um, mm. which is fun because. It it is a very self-referential film, and it's a very modern film, and it's one of the best, if not maybe so far, the best structured story. I think it it, ha- it has everything. It's got humor. It's got you know real serious moments. It's got drama. It's a thriller. It has every kind of aspect you could want from a great story, while having this really modern, contemporary sensibility that is so like free flowing and and fun. And it's it's a really it's 
this was in my um top 10 before we started the podcast and i think it's only going higher i mean it's a really uh spectacular story i think and yeah, I just I, I adore it, and I think it's interesting because there's a, there's a point where like Cruella's talking to Anita because they're they're friends, um, or they were anyway. I guess they're not anymore. Um, <laughs> um, where where Anita's like, you know, she's kind of saying that she's waiting for she believes that Roger will soon have a big hit song, uh, and he does, and it ends up being about her, which is mm. which is quite interesting, and it's, there's a lot of layers there, and it's it's fun because there's a, it kind of gets you to do a lot of the work in 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 connecting things in terms of how they're able to afford 101 dogs because one of the big things Corella's saying is that you know give me the puppies because you can barely afford to have them anyway well jokes on you now they can because of you <laughs> that's very true actually like there's a lot of it that you wouldn't necessarily like pick up I think when you're just watching this film and enjoying it because it is entertaining and it has all mm-hmm. those elements like you talked about as well but there's a lot of those kind of like clever things in it where it is quite self-referential and it does feel very very modern and very different story-wise I think to some of the other Disney films and even though I mean we'll, we'll get into like some of the similarities with with Lady and the Tramp and obviously we talked about the you know cameo appearances from those characters as well but it does it does feel it feels very modern and it feels very different in its kind of storytelling and its jokes as well it just it it feels like a real kind of like step into modern stories and yeah. I, I guess it's like it's coming off the back of Sleeping Beauty as well so there is that real contrast between this very I think maybe Sleeping Beauty or perhaps Sword in the Stone is like the oldest film in terms of when it's set um mm-hmm. i would need to look that up or think about well, that they're a bit both, more they're but... both all right they're both definitely medieval they're both like the well sleeping beauty they say explicitly i think it's what the 13th or 12th century or 14th maybe i think it's 14th yeah 14th yeah and i'm not sure when when sort of i guess we'll find out uh very shortly when sort of the sound of step but yeah it's it's interesting because it's kind of anchored by these two very medieval uh, films and then after Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book also is a lot more modern and and and, and jazzy, if you will. Um, but mm. this is this is the first contemporary set film, and and it feels like it, and it's it's kind of this breath of fresh air. Not that they necessarily needed it. I wouldn't say that their storytelling was stale before this, um, but they do kind of need it because you know you're entering a new decade, and when you look back in history, I don't think you think of it when you're making it, but kind of the world is is looked at in decades, and you you know you look at the '60s for whatever reason, you know you're not like the late, you know, it's just how you think of things, the '60s, '70s, '80s, and and so forth. You kind of categorize by decades. So when you're entering a new decade, it's probably at the back of your mind as an animation studio that's been going for as long as they have, uh, that you know. They're a company that's always about pushing forward and, and trying new things and, and pushing the boundaries of, of what animation can be. Uh, so I think it's a logical step for them, and it's a really interesting one. And I'm I'm curious as to the kind of g- going back with, with Sword in the Stone before then, you know, leaping forward again with the Jungle Book. Although you could argue that the Jungle Book is kind of set whenever, um, mm. but the sensibility of Jungle Book is very modern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that... 101 kind of sits between Sleeping Beauty and and Sword in the Stone, isn't it? But they got, they really do kind of like flit around the the time periods in this mm-hmm. in this decade. It's definitely like a lot of people describe the. I mean, we're still in the Silver Age. A lot of people describe it as kind of like the one of the most creative times for Disney in terms of like what they were what they were doing and how different their their films are from each other and 
I think the what you were saying about the animation style in this, I know a lot of people really don't like it. And I will be the first to admit that I do prefer the kind of like beautiful, mm -hmm. exquisite watercolor. You know, they, they look like they could be framed and hung on your wall. Like that is that is my preference if I had to choose. But I think there is, I think there's still something really great about 101 and, and its animation style. And that does make it feel very modern and also doesn't really age it as well. Like, yeah. obviously some of the some of the vehicles and, and and that are you know you can you can date them based on that um but other than that it it feels quite modern still i think because we spend most of the time with animals um it doesn't really you could watch it and sort of think that it was it was set now or at yeah. any kind of like time period from from 60s onwards really mm -hmm. um but yeah, it's it's. I can see why people don't like this style of animation. I think t some people see it as lazy, um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of I ambivalent to it. I I don't hate it. I prefer the other style, but I think there is still much to be appreciated about this. And it's interesting hearing about that. I was reading about the like the Xerox process as well, and obviously how that kind of came out of losing so much money on sleeping mm -hmm. beauty that they had they kind of had to find a way of of cutting the costs but also within that that there's still kind of you know huge amounts of creativity and what you were describing with the the cardboard kind of like models of the cars i'm kind of like that sounds like a very like early precursor to like 3d printing or something um but just to kind of incorporate those things with the sort of more traditional hand-drawn style as well it just goes to show that even when they were cutting costs or you know considering the costs and how they could make savings that they were still it's still an incredibly creative period for disney which is why i think it's not really fair to call this animation style lazy mm -hmm. if that makes sense I, I think there's still hugely creative moments in it I, 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 yeah, I would argue that there's just as much you can frame in 101 as there in Sleeping Beauty. I mean, it's just a very different style, but I mean, as, mm. you know, as you can see looking through any art gallery or any museum is that there's lots of different kinds of art and there's lots of different ways things can be beautiful or exciting to look at. Uh, mm. And I think 101 Dalmatians is just a very different way of looking at the world than Sleeping Beauty is. You know, if you, Ken Anderson and, and Ivan Earl are very different people and they see things mm. very differently. Uh, and I think that's exciting, but it 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 is it is jarring uh, to come from something that's so like I think the the difference is that Sleeping Beauty is like so technically perfect mm, and yeah. so meticulously done and designed, while 101 Dalmatians is a lot more freewheeling and abstract mm. uh, and not avant-garde, but more more jazz. You know, it's more free and and free flowing and and creative and and open. Uh, yeah, I think it just feels to some people uh cheaper and perhaps lazier but i would say that they just don't understand art and that's okay um <laughs> but, but it's it, it i mean it doesn't it does not have the same technical or visual prowess as, as sleeping beauty but I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily yeah. because it's telling a very different story uh you know if sleeping beauty looked like this then who knows it would probably be a very different story but this this is you know just because it's from the same studio, 101 Dalmatians and Sleeping Beauty couldn't be further apart in terms of the story that they're trying to tell. Mm. And the I think as well, like the the art style suits the stories. And I think that's something we see with the the rest of the films 
to yeah. come that that sort of have this style as well that they are that bit more kind of like freewheeling and looser and and mm-hmm. like we said and it where like sleeping beauty the the images in the background look like paintings um 101 looks like sketches and it's very like obviously sketched and you can see you can always well you, you know you can see the kind of like the pencil marks and the the yeah. backgrounds are much less rendered and there isn't that same level of detail but i think certainly within the characters you still get that same kind of like high quality animation i think some of the character work is in this is amongst you know the best that that disney have done really and i think that's that's certainly the case with our villain uh i'd say i'm wasting no time in getting into the villain talk because you know i love her um just what an incredible creation cruella Deville is and i just want to just stick in with the animation for now and we'll, we'll talk kind of more about her as a character and just how dang evil she is but um just the design of that character i just absolutely love i mean like before she utters a word she just looks insane she's got this like crazy hair her face is this kind of like really interesting shape she's very kind of angular and skinny and just is just when you just look at her you just obviously it just kind of immediately screams villain and um well (laughs) yeah i've and she's also set up like there's such a you know there's so much dramatics before she even comes like perdita runs off and she's basically like this is the devil woman and this is not going to make me sound very intelligent but it finally clicked to me that her name is essentially cruel devil um (laughs) and i won't lie it blew my mind um Yeah, I, I don't know. And it, and it came for me because I was watching, um, I was, was listening to bits of the original Cruel, Cruella DeVille song. And like, mm. it's very strong on the emphasis that like Cruel and Devil are, are part of her name. Uh, yeah. So if that was there, younger me would have clocked it and I would have known this whole time. Um, and maybe I did. Maybe this revelation came a few years ago and I just forgot. That's very like me. So I wouldn't be surprised. Um, <laughs> but it really, it, it kind of bowled me over and... <laughs> well you know it is what it is but she you know they they talk about her before she comes like everyone's like the dogs talk about her the mm. roger and and um, anita talk about her pongo and perdita talk about her. everyone's talking about corella before she even shows up and she really gets like a star entrance which you gotta like burst through the door and there's like green smoke cloud mm. um but it's interesting because she's so tiny and lanky and she is just engulfed by this like massive fur coat and yeah <laughs> the fur coat makes a lot of sense because you know she's all about fashion and and style um and she wants the puppies so she can have a beautiful coat and she can look beautiful um which is not new for disney villains uh the very first villain herself the og the evil queen from snow white was all about beauty and you know she tried to kill snow white so she could be more beautiful uh and it's essentially the same thing here uh where cruella is trying to kill dogs so she can be more beautiful we'll see it uh time and time again you know ursula's whole thing is about uh, becoming beautiful so she can steal um, the prince and all she needs is Ariel's voice to do it. Gaston is all about, you know, being one with, with Belle because he's so beautiful. He perceives himself to be the most handsome man on earth and he perceives her to be the most beautiful woman and therefore they must be together because they're the two perfect specimens in his mind. <laughs> um, and, you know, vanity and, and, and is very central, I think, to a lot of Disney villains. Um, mm. And certainly this one well lady tremaine as well you know is very much about image and and maintaining that uh, idea of 
almost royalty, even though she basically lives in a dilapidating house. Um, mm. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of themes of of, of vanity in, in in Disney villains, and few are clearer or more explicit than Cruella Deville. Yeah, I was just thinking of um, is it Mother Gothel in Tangled as well? Who obviously yeah, her her whole one. thing is you know that she wants to remain young. So that's something that it does come up a lot in in the Disney films. I hadn't really. You know, sometimes you like you know these things in the back of your mind, but you've not really like sat and made the made connections. Connection. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we've sort of we've we've talked because we love our villains so much. We have talked about the things that they are motivated by, and and how that kind of like shapes their shapes their actions. And Cruella, we don't. I mean, apart from obviously like the clue is in her name that she is evil personified. We don't really find out that much about her as a person apart from that she is clearly obsessed with with how she looks um it we i get the impression and this is something i noticed this time is that based on the the house that is this kind of like big like dilapidated mansion that i guess like belonged to a father or a family member or something yeah hell house where the where the puppies get taken it's clearly not in a good a good state that house but yet she drives like quite a nice car like the car looks pretty fancy and obviously she is all about the image she has these jewels she has these big fur coats and and clearly likes to give off this impression of wealth but i'm i'm very intrigued about her as a character and i like that we don't get told that much about her and we spoke last week about how we we have different views on Maleficent but we kind of agreed on one thing in that the live action Maleficent almost told us too much about the villain and we are getting a live action uh, Cruella film at some point I believe no are we really I was just about to say I'm so glad they haven't tried to yeah never mind with um, them surprised (laughs) with Emma Stone and um uh, we'll we'll get to the the 1996 um adaptation a bit later cuz i actually do quite like that but and don't um, forget 102 dalmatians of of course the masterpiece um yeah but it it's i i like that we don't find out that much about her and i hope this new kind of cruella centric film doesn't doesn't reveal too much oh, like oh you know it will you know it'll be like yeah. a boy said she was ugly once and then like, now her like whole persona has changed just like yeah Maleficent. that's what they're gonna do with all of them they're gonna ruin them all <laughs> she used to love dogs or something and used to be yeah. like go to kind of like peter marches and stuff and be like anti-fur and then something <laughs> happened <laughs> and then like a dog was like barked at her and then like some guy was like you're ugly and then it was it was game over he was like yeah. i'll never love you without a beautiful fur coat or something really <laughs> stupid you, you know they're gonna pull that they, they they did it with maleficent that's why i don't like it um, yeah because i think villains work the best when you well not always but generally speaking when people are kind of evil and and just very malicious in a film or in anything it, it's it's more interesting to leave that up to the imagination and and think why are they like this rather than mm. being told um you know show don't tell you 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 don't need to know cruella's backstory i'm yeah. I, don't get me wrong i would like to but at the same time i don't want to know because like you're saying like it it's more interesting in in a lot of ways 
when people are just cruel. Some people in the world are just horrible. Some people are just mm. awful. There's, there was there doesn't need to be um, a traumatic event to make someone a bully or a bad person. Sometimes people, often there is, but sometimes people are just bad. And sometimes people yeah. are just good. You don't need um, a dramatic uh, climax in their life to change their personality. Because a lot of people... You know, there's a whole debate on whether people can change or not. A lot of people don't. A lot of people mm. are, you know, are just different variations of themselves throughout life. They don't, most people don't go from being like an evil villain to like a beautiful angel or vice versa. It just, life doesn't really work that way. So it's more interesting, I think, and uh, why Cruella works so well and why basically every villain up to this point works so well is we don't get that information. Uh, mm. We join them at this point in their life when they're evil. We, it doesn't matter what happened before because now they're evil and, and that's what makes them frightening and exciting. Yeah, I, and I've kind of, with, with what we have in the film, I've kind of made up enough of a narrative in my head that provides that's like a bit of yeah, exactly. context. Yeah, and because uh, what I sort of think is like, obviously she's been left this like big old house. I'm guessing like, inherited stuff like from her father or family or whatever yeah. and has like squandered that wealth completely. She just like Probably fritters it away. on fashion. Yeah, fashion, cocktail parties, fancy cigarettes. Like, that Mm -hmm. is how she lives her life. She has let this kind of, like, big old house in the country just, you know, fall into disrepair. Um, And that's that's why she is kind of the way that she is. And she is just so motivated by looking fabulous. And let's face it, she does look fabulous. And I (laughs) can see those kind of, like, old Hollywood comparisons you were making. Like, she definitely has that that kind of vibe um of yeah the... and it's, it's interesting because she is very similar to lady tremaine in that sense in that they're mm. both very obsessed with image um because Cin- the cinderella house is more or less falling apart they kind of established there's holes everywhere you know that the mice go through and all of that um mm. but it's kept in a more pristine uh quality if you will because they have uh, a, basically a servant to do everything for them. Cruella does not. Uh, she yeah. has two henchmen, which who are amazing, and I uh, we stand. <laughs> um, but you know they they don't clean up her house. They they're there to capture and, and and eventually kill the dogs. They're not there to clean. That's not what they're mm-hmm. there for. So she doesn't have that. So her house is she's kind of like if Lady Tremaine had no stepdaughters and no Cinderella to clean up her house. I think you can kind of make that I, I was thinking about this kind of like how they were similar and I was thinking that like it's almost like an alternative version of Lady Tremaine but mm. they're very different in some ways but they're also you know essentially motivated by the same thing is, is I think anyway that's what's fun about Cruella de Vil is besides the the puppies you know you don't know why she wants this coat um, Lady mm. Tremaine's a bit more obvious because you know that she wants the house to stay beautiful so she can keep it going and her one of her step uh, or one of her daughters can become uh, the princess, which you know, jokes on you, Cinderella's gonna become the princess by girl. Um, but both of them, also, also both of them live. Um, you know, they neither of them meet their death. Cinderella doesn't die. Did, did, I didn't miss that, did I? I didn't, no, she like, doesn't. Blink. No, because she's in the live action ones and she's in the sequel, I believe, that comes out like fifty years later, straight to DVD. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's they're they're in many ways very similar, I think, which which is interesting, and they're also she's also very similar to the Evil Queen and some of the others we talked about that come up in in the nineties, and mm. we'll probably see um some that are slipping our mind as as we go, some other uh, villains that are kind of obsessed with image and in the way that they're perceived, which is a real thing, and I think that's what makes 
them some of the most effective villains. That's why the queen is so relatable is that, you know, people fear aging and people fear uh, getting old and people fear a new shiny model coming in to replace you. That's a very real fear. Um, mm-hmm. And people are very concerned with image, especially nowadays. It's, it's you know, these films have remarkable foresight because obviously this is long, 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 long before social media. Uh, but now <laughs> with, you know, Instagram and everything, everyone is kind of always trying to promote uh, a certain image of themselves it's, it's what that's there for so everyone's kind of competing with each other whether it's subconscious or a very deliberate effort um so you know this whole idea of of image and, and how you're perceived is is very prevalent and very relatable to people in the 60s and people now and basically forever mm. yeah i think as well like one of the things that makes cruella so evil and so memorable is the fact that she is trying to kill dogs and like <laughs> i mean we're dog lovers so you know that obviously outrages yeah. us but for anyone it's just like you do not you do not touch the dogs you do not harm the dogs and it weirdly has i think more of an effect on me than than say like the evil queen who you know obviously the fact that she like wants to straight up murder snow white is terrifying but yes. there's something that it feels a lot more real world Cruella even though she's very exaggerated she's very over the top it's you know there there are people who who sadly you know they do kill animals and they do kind of you know you think of like hunters and that sort of thing who who they you know they want to to kill animals for you know for their fur or for their tusks or whatever it is so those people do exist and obviously she's this very kind of like exaggerated caricature and uh, and everything else but yeah, the fact the fact that what she wants to do is like kill a load of cute little innocent baby puppies is is just like the next kind of level of of yeah. evil in this. And Lady and the Tramp was didn't really have that. Well, we I mean we spoke about it, didn't we? It didn't really have that kind of clear villain. There were people who were perceived as villains by the dogs. Yeah, but, it was you know. it was very much like Dumbo, where it was a you know society is more or less the villain. There's a number of like people who play a negative role in the dog's perspective, uh, and then you know you see a dog being led to be put down. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, there there isn't a villain, and this kind of brings those fears and personifies them into one human, or technically three if you include Horace and Jasper as well. But they're just there <laughs> to do her bidding. Yeah. Um, but I have it's I'm glad you brought up the whole idea that you know seeing animals get hurt is so much more effective in a way than seeing humans get hurt which is a bit weird mm. but i i do have a theory on it because i have actually thought about it a lot in general it's, it's a film like marley and me and like you know when when animals die or are close to death on screen it's a lot more effective in a way and, and i think it's for a bunch of reasons but the main one being that violence is very common um when it's human on human in film mm. and tv and books and in and, and all art really and also real life i mean people kill each other people hurt each other all the time and it's a lot more prevalent and i think you see it a lot more which in a way desensitizes you to it obviously if you you know you were involved or witness something in real life it would still have horrible you know traumatic whatever um but it's it's you see it so much that it's kind of in your brain as an expectation that it would happen but i don't think you see instances of animal cruelty in films and things even close to his often it's probably like one fiftieth that's obviously there's no real math behind that um <laughs> but you know it's probably something like that like you see it way way less so when it does happen it's a lot more effective and also generally speaking for animal lovers and you know a lot of people it's harder to see cute things be hurt than things that you don't perceive to be as nice looking 
which mm. is I think a sad fact of the world, but it, it's kind of true. Like, you know, you, you don't want a fluffy little sweet angel to be hurt, but if, you know, a person gets hurt in a movie, it's not as damaging, I think. But it's, yeah. it's an interesting, it's interesting because I also feel the same way. Like I, I find it a lot more difficult to watch things be cruel to animals. And I think that's partially because you just don't see it as much. So you're not, as, you're not anywhere near as desensitized to it as you are human on human violence you know there's so many war movies uh there's so many action movies that are filled with killing but you don't really there's not really a like animal equivalent unless you're talking like watership down or like the plague dogs which are two amazing uh british animations of of dogs having really rough or and well watership down is other animals but plague dogs is really devastating and really good if you if you haven't seen it's a wonderful uh movie but it's very sad um, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you just don't see it very often. It's not, it's, you know, you don't see dogs being killed or animals being killed or, or the threat of animals being killed anywhere near as often as, as humans. Yeah. And, and we get a, we get a Disney death moment in this film as well, which you kind of Thank mentioned you. earlier, um, with the, the puppy that is, um, initially thought to have been born, uh, stillborn. So this is when, um, Purdy is is giving birth and they're sort of calling out the numbers of, of how many puppies there have been and there's some great uh just a side note there's some great in animation in that scene as well between um Pongo and and Roger as they're kind of <laughs> getting excited about all these puppies being born and also just mm-hmm. the weight of uh de- you know dealing with all these little little baby pups as well is is uh is kicking in but then there's this this really kind of sad moment where they've just announced that 15 puppies have been born and and everyone's excited and then nanny comes in with this this little pup all wrapped up and you know says you know 14 you know this one didn't make it and it's it's a longer scene than i remember like it is it's quite prolonged in the in in thinking oh my goodness this 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 puppy doesn't make it and I have seen this film so many times. Like this is easily one of my most watched Disney films because I was obsessed with this film in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So I can recite it back to front, inside out. I know it very well. But even this time watching it, I was like, gosh, this scene, it does it does linger on that sad moment. And you then obviously get the 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 lovely moment where the the puppy does kind of come around they are able to revive him and and bring him back and he's called lucky which is adorable um but yeah it's it's one of the stranger disney deaths i guess because it's it just i think just in the way that scene is executed you don't kind of have all the characters like crowded around crying there's not you know strings playing in the background or anything like that but yeah. there's that real real life fear and panic that this that this pup hasn't made it and it's very quiet and it's very subtle but i i really like i really like the execution of that scene i think it's very very well done it it is very well done and one of the the key difference i think between this kind of thing and other disney deaths is that you've never seen this character before Mm. um you know all the disney deaths before and and after really are about you know a a beloved character whether it's a sidekick or a a main character or whoever that you've seen throughout the movie uh and that you've really grown an attachment to and then you're, you're worried that they die but this one you've never seen before um what's interesting is that it's it's kind of like it's the weather is bad outside and there's like some thunder and stuff but when he's I don't think this is what they were going for, but this is just a weird thing I picked up on. It gave me very, like, Frankenstein, like, bringing things to life kind of moment, because he's, like, rubbing it, and there's, like, this, yeah. like, cl- clash of thunder, and I was like, where is this? Because I, I did kind of, fr- I actually honestly forgot about this moment, and I was like, where on earth is this going? This is so weird, but it, it it's not the moment it goes in, but there's kind of that 
flash of I wouldn't be surprised if they were paying a bit of homage to you know bring resurrection and and Frankenstein mm-hmm. and that whole kind of idea um it makes me happy to think that that's what they were going for <laughs> yeah that's a very good point actually I think obviously the thing I notice about that scene and the weather in that scene is that it obviously makes it very atmospheric and it obviously does kind of like provide that great backdrop when Cruella you know bowls in again and it's it's all very very dramatic and very sinister I think if it was just quiet and still outside that scene wouldn't have the same impact but yeah that's a a very good point that I hadn't (laughs) thought about with the who knew that we could make a link between Frankenstein and 101 Dalmatians but we did it I'm proud of us we're just we're just we're just that good Um, (laughs) speaking of speaking of weather this is a very weather intensive film and and weather plays um, a really big role snow Mm. and ice especially are very central to the whole kind of climactic chase that happens at the end and then obviously rain and thunder play a, a big role in in these moments um that we get earlier so it's it's very interesting you kind of get like all of the seasons except really like fall like you get you know summer summer sunny blah, 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 wow sunny summery <laughs> days i'm so you know the, my heat the heat has melted my brain but you get sunny <laughs> summery days you get kind of like wintry you get stormy weather you you kind of get everything Mm. um which is which is interesting um i just want before we dive in i I don't want to go too far away before we talk about the very opening of this film which i would like to um because the credit sequence in this is probably the best of all disney and one of the great opening title sequences in in any film i think because it, it it really establishes um a very exciting uh tone and a really creative and playful energy that really permeates the whole movie Mm. um there's really great moments when you basically there's a whole bunch of dogs and a whole bunch of spots and they have a lot of fun with these spots like the spots become like steam clouds from a like steam boat Uh, you know they're kind of everywhere they're in in people and animals and and in the environment there's kind of they have a lot of fun playing with spots um, and with the dogs, and there's a lot of barking. Anya was alert and ready from the first second of the film. She is currently snoring in a corner, but if this movie was playing in the background, you would definitely hear her uh, barking away. But yeah, no, there's there's just there's so much energy and and life in that opening sequence, and it really builds into the rest of the movie, and it does a really good job. Uh, establishing tone, which is difficult to do when essentially what you're doing is just listing a whole bunch of people who made a movie. Hmm. Yeah, I I really like the the credits in this and I think it's this and the credits for the Aristocats that I always think of as quite similar just because it does have I think the Aristocats as well has the characters kind of interacting with the credits um in their little paw prints kind of like creating the music notes and stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm totally imagining that, but it sounds right in my brain. It um, certainly happens in this. The um the spots become music notes as well. Yeah, I like I really like that and I like that that is a, a kind of like a subtle reference to part of the plot as well, which is that, you know, Roger is a songwriter. Yeah. He writes music. That is music. That is his job. Um, and I like that that little link. And um, the it's just really cute. I like the the way the dogs kind of like interact with the credits. I think it, Disney credits are always like when they have them, they're always beautiful to look at. They're often like have this big kind of opening number of a song from the either from the film or a you know 
usually <laughs> in the princess ones, it's always just like someone like singing the character's name and telling you about how like <laughs> how, <laughs> how lovely they are. It's like the Cinderella one is literally just people singing a song about how beautiful Cinderella is. Um, yeah, but this is... Isn't, oh, is Sleeping Beauty is once? Do they sing Once Upon a Dream? Yeah, they do. Okay, yeah, and right after that, it's all Hail Princess Aurora. So it's close. Yeah, yeah, and it's like it, the song that's so good they put it in the film twice because because <laughs> there's not many right. other songs. It ends the film too. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is very different. It's just um, it's all it's just all instrumental, isn't it? And yeah, the score very, very is very free flowing, very jazzy, very much in the spirit of the film. Yeah, and and I really like um the score in this film in general. I think it's very it's very playful. It's very kind of upbeat. It really fits the tone well. And I just I just want to say something very very quickly about the the weather that you were talking about um earlier. Um, so there's it's a, a literary term I believe where it's um called pathetic fallacy, pathetic fallacy. which yeah. yeah, which is the the device in which kind of uh human emotions or whatever are attributed attributed sorry can't get my words out uh to <laughs> yeah to aspects of nature of um and weather and, and all the rest of it so um i think that that is very true in this film in that in the beginning mm-hmm. it's like sunny and nice and that's when the the romance is kind of building between both anita and roger and pongo and purdy and then as the film becomes or the narrative becomes more dramatic then obviously the weather kind of becomes much more dramatic we get the thunder the rain and then obviously at the end there is the snow and the snow provides a really great backdrop for that moment in the story as well but it's, it makes it all that more dramatic like if it hadn't snowed they wouldn't have needed to worry about their their footprints or when they kind of roll in the soot at the end and then it's the yeah. snow dripping on them that shows that they're not labradors they are dalmatians so i think that it's I think it's very deliberate in it kind of like going through the seasons, but it's really the extremes and it definitely reflects like what is what is going on like in the story as well, which I think is not something I noticed as a child because I don't think I was sat there going, oh, the weather really reflects the... You were like, wow, what great use of pathetic fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> as a five-year-old, I definitely knew what that meant. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's get on to the... Should we, should we... This week we stand because, I mean, I know we love literally everyone in this film, but... Heck yeah. And what's... I'll, I'll just say an interesting thing that I kind of... I forget every time. Maybe my memory is just really bad because I've seen this an awful lot, but you kind of forget how many different animals are involved mm-hmm. in 101 Dalmatians because it's called... I think that's because it's called 101 Dalmatians and you just assume that there's going to be so many. And I honestly, when there were like only 15 puppies at the beginning, I was like, aren't there supposed to be like 85 more? And then I remembered <laughs> where they are. Um, but it's 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 kind of funny because the, the, the name actually kind of plays a trick on the whole thing because you do expect, if you're watching this for the first time, you're like, why don't they have 99 children? Mm. I was, this is 101 Dalmatians. Why are there only like 17 in total? But then eventually you find them and it's kind of this twist almost in a way when you realize that she actually is harboring you know, another 85, however many there are to get to 99 to build, to make all the coats. Mm. Um, but anyway, yes, we stand. <laughs> we stand. Um, I, my choice is um, a delightful, chubby little pup called Roly, <laughs> who I absolutely adore. He is one of Pongo and Purdy's puppies and he is noticeably tubbier than the other, than the other pups, but he is... Relate. 
<laughs> yeah, can relate. Uh, he is also one of the cutest, and I just love that his entire character arc is him being hungry and like. Oh, there's no arc. It is a line. <laughs> he <laughs> has one. He has, and it's great, and it works so well, and it like so it dispels good. really dramatic moments where he's like, "Mother, I'm hungry. I'm <laughs> hungry." That's like his own. I swear, that's the only. I like to think whoever recorded his voice like literally showed up once and was like, "I'm hungry," and then left. Yeah, they just repeated it. it. (laughs) it. But it's it's they do such a good job integrating that and bringing that character to life, and it's amazing that it's it just kind of speaks to the talent of the people involved in creating these characters and the animators and the storytellers and and Bill Pete for for example in in this instance, how Mm. you can make a character who has one singular personality trait, (laughs) one nothing else. He has no (laughs) dimension. This is a flat character with one thing that's that's it but it works and you love it and it's funny and it's sweet and relatable and and people love roly and the only thing he does is be hungry i mean same everyone is hungry (laughs) all the time i'm I'm hungry right now you know it's just it's the heat probably makes me even hungrier i don't even know what's going on um but yeah no there's there's something really and i was also hungry watching the film which made me really like deeply spiritually relate to to yeah in in his personal struggle of being hungry he's also like (laughs) the slowest one and like always like playing catch up to everyone else which as a kid in like gym class i i relate hard to that Um, yeah so i i appreciate it and and really enjoy him yeah I would say that if I was to find a character I most relate to in this film, it would definitely be elements of Rowley. And every time I watch this film with Martin, he is like, you are Rowley. And I'm like, thank you. I'm taking that as a compliment because he is the best. (laughs) And also... um, lucky like the i just love it's so adorable the moment when he's like walking in the snow and he just cannot he cannot he will not take another step and he's like my toes are froze and my nose is froze and i not at the moment because it is a heat wave but normally i really feel the cold and love complaining when i'm cold as well <laughs> so if you could just make a a mix of those two We're lucky yeah row lucky is is me <laughs> um but there's so many great characters in this which i think we we sort of agreed but also kind of had our yeah favorites well, as well so who's who I, who I do, do you stand i did want to <laughs> shout out um sergeant tibbs who is the delightful cat because he plays a much more significant role than i remembered um and you know with without him th- they probably would not have found the dogs they would not have been freed from jasper and horse and he really is the key um to all of this and as a I still am a cat person. Chip, my cat in Canada. If you are listening, shout out to you. Um, <laughs> and you know, I I grew up with cats and I love cats, so I I, I love seeing a, a cat save the day. Um, and he's very uncat in terms of like a stereotypical cat. Like he's not lazy, he's not aloof, he's very involved and and determined and and focused. And I love the whole dynamic between the Colonel, um, who's the older, I can't remember what breed of dog um sergeant tibbs and the captain who's the horse and they're just they're just like lovely old military lads just trying to still be functional but really he's like the only one of the three that is that is you know fully with it still but there's a really great moment where he where jasper and horace kind of break into the the barn um that he's managed to get that sergeant tibbs has managed to get all 99 puppies into um and they're there and he like 
uses the horse's legs and like he's like ready set fire and he, <laughs> and he uses them as, as like a, a a ballista almost which I, I found really delightful and, and really creative and fun uh so shout out to those three but especially uh sergeant tibbs but honestly imagine not standing roly like imagine not watching imagine watching this and be like i don't get it no <laughs> you don't do that there's a reason he's beloved by all because we are all roly i want that on a t-shirt please <laughs> I just want Rolly on all my, like, just everywhere. I just want just, wall, Rolly wallpaper. Rolly wallpaper with, like, little speech marks. I'm hungry. <laughs> Mother, I'm hungry. Oh, it's the way he says it as well. He's just, he's, he so doesn't sweet. care what is going on. He doesn't no, care what's happening. No, it's always in the most, like, dramatic moments. He's like, but I'm hungry. Yeah. Food, please. <laughs> oh, I love him so much. I also just want to give a very, very quick mention uh, to the cows. They also kind of like feature in the scene uh, where they are they're lovely, <laughs> where they're being hidden in the barn, and like they sort of remind me of like a, a much more pleasant and friendly version of like the elephant matriarchs who i feel like we the, keep bringing up but we love them so because they're iconic the the elephants before they realized dumbo had big ears yeah when they're all like sweetness and light and everything yeah. and i i picked up this time that the, i don't know what the fourth one is called i don't think they say her name but um the three that are mentioned are called queenie duchess and princess and i just i love that for them i just <laughs> i really do me too and they are they're so lovely they're so giving and the um the is it a border collie uh there mm, and who gives who gives, i think it's just um, a collie who gives pongo whatever he is he's a dog yeah. he reminded me of lassie i think lassie's a border collie i don't know um all i know is my dog is a boxer cross i don't care about other dogs um <laughs> and i know that the main dogs are dalmatians because they're pretty clear on that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no he he's very lovely as well in like that scene with them and the like they you know the cows give all the puppies milk and uh, Rolly is so excited by that by the way he's like everyone <laughs> get out of my way it's my time to shine um but yeah no the border collie offers like scraps that he's found to to Pongo which I think is is really lovely um mm. and there's just a lot of really lovely helpful animals this is kind of like the opposite of Alice of Wonderland in which everyone yes. is making <laughs> Alice's life miserable and being completely and utterly unhelpful um you have like a whole cavalcade of all sorts of animals uh that are very determined to make uh their lives better also shout out to um the goose whose name uh i think i wrote down but escapes me but she is lovely as well yes um lucy oh lucy goosey shout out to you lucy the goose Um, (laughs) oh it's yeah that's that's very true about the that it's like the complete opposite of alice in wonderland in that no characters are helpful none of them Mm -hmm. try to help alice along her way whereas in this i mean particularly the animals in this are not just exclusive to dogs because you know we talked about a cat and a horse and a goose and all all kinds of others they are all united in in wanting to find these puppies and i i really love the i mean i love the twilight bark sequence anyway i'm sorry anya that it made you bark um, I think she laughed. I think she was into it. She was like, yeah. "What's going on? So many There's dogs! So many!" Yeah, <laughs> just freaking out. Um, but I, I really love, I really love that 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 exists. <laughs> and maybe I've thought about this too much. But I'm like, which dog came up with this? And also, like, then spread the word and was like, "This is how we communicate, guys." Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's the dog. I want the backstory. Yeah, I want to know. Has it been like passed down? Like, do they teach? Do the dogs teach their? Do like Pongo and yeah. teach their puppies? Like, this is a thing. And I also like um, when 
they're like up top of the like hill or whatever and pongo is is barking and trying to get the message out and then roger obviously because we would all do that as dog owners <laughs> we'd be like stop yeah um, but it's like <laughs> trying to save you know they're trying to save their their puppies um yeah so the next time Anya barks, I'll be like, she's just having a con- Well, actually, the, ever since I've watched it, now when she barks, I'm like, she's just chatting to the other dog, seeing what's yeah. going on. <laughs> just and chatting. He, getting the getting the goss, getting the uh, getting just figuring out what's going on in the world. You're like, yeah. the neighbor said what? <laughs> that's, that's what that's what I'd like to think they're uh, they're barking at. Oh, I wish I could understand dogs. It would just bring me so much <laughs> joy. <laughs> but this is why this is one of the great things about 101 Dalmatians is that, you know, in a way it kind of gives you a window, whether it's accurate or not, it gives you a, a window into the life of a dog, um, mm. which I guess kind of segues into uh, the, the themes of Disney, one of which is, is man and nature. And you really see uh, the relationship between humans and, and dogs, but also even more central to it, as I think, is the relationship between dogs and dogs and other animals and how the animal kingdom. And this is a much more utopic version of the animal kingdom, I think, because everyone is trying to help each other rather than fight mm-hmm. and or eat each other, um, which is refreshing. I think, yeah. <laughs> if, if perhaps unrealistic, but that's OK, um, mm-hmm. because they are all united in their sort of hatred of, of Cruella de Vil, uh, because they all kind of know about Cruella de Vil because as Pongo and Perdita and Roger and Anita all knew, she is a cruel devil. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and then so another one we have is is sidekicks, and we get our villain sidekicks. We don't really have well, you could kind of consider all the animals, and you consider basically everyone outside of Pongo, Perdita, Roger, and Anita as a sort of sidekicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all kind of there to help the, the they're all kind of there to push the main story along. Uh, but I think we should give some particular notice the horse and jasper and this is kind of where the well cinderella i guess started the trend of like two villain sidekicks because you get mm. um well they had three really if you include lucifer but you get the stepsisters um but like captain hook has just me um there aren't really villains in, in lady the tramp and then Mal- uh, maleficent has uh diablo the not crow it's a raven i always make that mistake sorry <laughs> diablo if you're listening um <laughs> just kidding you've been turned to stone you can't listen um but then this kind of basically most of the like 90s ones like if you think like hercules has pain and oh sorry not hercules hades has pain and panic um ursula has flotsam and jetsam you know a lot of them have two kind of bumbling fools who have moments of in flashes of of intelligence and brilliance i think mm-hmm. um and so horse and jasper are certainly an example of that and what's interesting is i don't know if this was intentional it almost certainly wasn't but they established themselves as untrustworthy right away do you know what they're reading when we first see them? Um, I don't a newspaper, but I don't know what it is. They are. It is the Daily <laughs> Mail, and oh, you know, there we go. Right from off the bat, Wikipedia doesn't even trust the Daily Mail, uh, and neither should you. And it's established <laughs> right away. Please do not read the Daily Mail if you are listening. Why are you reading the Daily Mail? It is literally just a whole bunch of lies slapped together. Uh, read something real. Um, and and it's it's I it's the I noticed it right away, and I was like. I'd like to think, I'm sure this isn't the case, the Daily Mail, perhaps, I don't know about the Daily Mail in the 60s, perhaps it had a very different reputation. I do not know. Um, yeah. But now it certainly has a different reputation if 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 it had a different one in the 60s. Um, but I thought that was kind of funny because I was immediately <laughs> like, they're reading the Daily Mail. You cannot trust these Tories. Don't trust um, them. <laughs> they are wrong and, and insane. Um, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But they they do have moments of, of, of smarts and they do have... Uh, the occasional moment of, of intelligence. I think, I think Horace is the short stat one. 
and Jasper is the tall, lanky one. But Horace seems so, to be yeah. smarter, even though they don't really listen to him. And I think if they listened to him, it probably would have been a bit more successful. But they don't, and they fail miserably. Mm. <laughs> um, and then we, we talked about the Disney death. And then, again, with the absence of a parent... Well, this this is more interesting, I think, because obviously... It's it's very central to the story is is this kind of absence of in the fact that they've been taken forcefully um from Pongo and Perdita the puppies and it's kind of a story about getting them back and, and rescuing them and then going from seventeen Dalmatians to one hundred and one, uh, which is quite quite a shift I think. Um, <laughs> but you know they kind of take on all these all these animals and and Roger and Anita become these surrogate parents if you will for all ninety nine or all one hundred and one of them. But what's interesting is that in Lady and the Tramp the dogs were all very much established as either like you know with an owner or, or without an owner but they were all very much considered you know pets if you mm. will but in 101 dalmatians it's kind of a, a fun twist on that because they basically do the exact opposite and they talk about there are humans as pets uh and that's not just pongo and perdita that's basically every animal that refers to human uh refers to them as as their pets so this is very much kind of like leading the tramp 2.0 if you will like these are mm. like evolved dogs and they live their own life and and the humans just happen to tag along if you will yeah i re- i really like that as a concept it always kind mm-hmm. of like makes me chuckle when and it, the film is narrated by by pongo at least in the beginning and when he kind of like refers to to roger as his pet i just find that really funny and there's a really great gag as well which is like yes. maybe one of my favorite disney gags where uh, Pongo is right at the beginning and Pongo is like looking out the window and he's sort of reflecting and he's thinking how nice it would be to have a companion but also to find a companion for for Roger as well and we see this this series of of women and their their dogs walk, <laughs> walking past and there's kind of like an old saying of like you know the dogs look like their owners I don't know how much truth is in that I wish but I look like Anya yeah she is flawless <laughs> um, but that it's it's very much the this gag is the very much kind of extreme of that these these dogs and these owners look like identical and it's very funny i like the fancy little poodle and the fancy lady i like the dog that has like looks like it has like long ginger hair and then the the lady walking the dog looks exactly the same as well and it's it's just it's very it's very smart um, and I think it's, I always like those jokes that work on several levels. And I think this one definitely does because you, it's amusing that the, the, the dog that, you know, Pongo is, is, is looking, is looking out the window in this way. And like, you know, trying to find like, oh, I've got to, I've got to find, uh, you know, someone for my pet. <laughs> like that's funny in itself. But then obviously yeah. you have the, the, the joy then of these uh, dog and owner twins or lookalikes. And it's, I, I really love that bit. <laughs> yes, my my favorite joke comes at the very end. And it's interesting because there's, I think, kind of a theory now that a lot of people make animated films for kids, but they kind of want to fill them with jokes so the adults who bring their kids to the movie theater don't get bored out of their minds. Um, and I think you see that a lot more in the later Disney films in terms of like almost more like adult jokes that are thrown in that you kind of pick up now when you're watching them rather than when you were a kid. Mm. But I think we get kind of the first examples of this because when they come back with 101 or 99 um, puppies, uh, <laughs> Roger <laughs> says, Pongo, you rascal. And the implications of this are are real and they are they are very um, 
adult and you know it's something that would go right over a kid's head and i'm sure when we first watched it we had no idea what the implications Mm -hmm. of that were uh but it was very funny uh and there's a few moments like that like when he basically says something quite similar uh when pongo's having all these puppies and pongo makes quite a few funny faces uh when the number (laughs) goes from like one to like 15 yeah uh, and he's like what on earth am i in for and you know those are just things that i think this this kind of starts that more uh adult way of storytelling if you will and and kind of those hidden jokes that would be completely over the head of of a kid but the kind of things that keep adults uh entertained although i will say disney for the most part most of their films uh although i think that does change in the uh, early 2000s uh but for the most part their films are pretty wonderful for people of all ages but Mm. it's kind of you see that beginning of that sort of trend where they slip in these jokes for adults yeah and it's very it's very subtle i think there's there's less subtle things in the films that have come before this i mean some of the stuff in uh fantasia and one of the package films i can't remember which is kind of quite suggestive and more overtly i think than what Mm -hmm. what one's the one where oh it's in fantasia where the um the centaurettes kind of you very much like see that they like have breasts and it's like more like over kind of like nudity whereas this is i think this is obviously very different it's just a kind of passing reference that i think is like a more like subtle way of of inserting like adult themes yeah it's like a nudge nudge wink wink and i think that it's it's clever because then you know obviously if the the kids of the sorry the uh, parents have taken the kids you know to the cinema to see this or they're watching it at home the kids are loving it. They're having a great time and, you know, enjoying the story and, and all the funny bits that they can understand. But then there's kind of like, oh, there's that little joke for like for the parents as well <laughs> sort of thing. Or, you know, us as as we grow up and then realize what they actually mean when they say these things. But yeah, there's um there's just a couple of kind of other. Well, one like very, very subtle uh piece of animation that I picked up on this time around that I just really, really loved and wanted to give a mention to. So uh it's involving cruella because you know we love um and she's it's when she's on the phone i believe she's on the phone to horace and jasper or one of them and um you see that her phone is uh like shaped like a devil so the i mean the clues are there the the mm. the, the breadcrumbs are dropped that she is you know that she's a bit I picked evil up on none of these <laughs> yeah they're very there you're right but what you what you may not pick up on is that as um as her mood changes, uh like her kind of expression changes, she becomes like visibly more angry. The expression or the animation on the phone changes very slightly. So like the little oh. the little face of the devil becomes like more and more enraged. It's like so subtle, but you're gonna need to go back and like watch that scene again I, now I'm, because I'm going to. I was like, oh, that the, like the phone looks like a devil, and and Martin missed it, so I had to rewind it, and then it was then that I noticed that the face of it changed as well, which I thought was very cool. Um, also, we mentioned the uh, the absolute banger that is the Canine Crunchies theme song. Um, do you know who sang it? Because I do, and I'm ready to blow your mind if you don't know this. <laughs> I don't Bl- blow my mind. Oh, I'm so excited because I feel like whenever I find these little nuggets, you're like, yeah, knew that next, but (laughs) (laughs) not this time. Um, It is, in fact, uh, Lucille Bliss, who is the voice of Anastasia in Cinderella and various other Disney films as well, I think. Um, But yeah, she she is the singer of uh, the Canine Crunchies theme song. I love that. 
It's um it is on IMDb. Um it's uh you have to kind of it's tucked away. So when you like look at the cast list, when you go to like rest of cast listed alphabetically or whatever, she is there, um, uncredited, uh, but TV commercial singer voice is what she is down as on here. I love that. Isn't isn't that great? Like what that a what a fantastic, useless piece of trivia that will probably never stand anyone in good stead in the future but at least you know <laughs> at least you can say i know <laughs> who I like sings that. the canine crunchies theme song um was there anything else that i th- will we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the uh live action but was there anything else that you wanted to uh, um mention or i i guess i'll i'll close on this 101 nominations on my favorite uh, Cruella Deville moment of which there are many but there is a moment very close to the end when they're like in the heat of the car chase uh, and she finds Jasper and Horace uh, driving along the way and she freaks out at them and tells them to watch their driving because they're driving like lunatics and then she goes <laughs> off driving like the most deranged person on earth and I just I just find it so funny I just find her lack of complete self-awareness uh, really amusing and and really i think lends to that dimension of of villainy because you know there's something scarier about a villain who doesn't realize that they're necessarily a villain mm. uh and and i appreciate that that moment but yeah um i think 101 dalmatians is one of the all-time greats uh and i think it kind of gets overshadowed by uh some of the bigger louder movies uh but i think it's it's quite spectacular and i think it's even gone up even higher in my estimation so i'm i'm looking forward to seeing where in the top 10 i'm almost certain this will remain or where where it has gone by the end of our our project yeah this uh, this is definitely one of my favorites as well and i think that it wasn't until i was watching it this time that i really twigged like how much i love this film but also what a like a huge part of my childhood this film was like i was obsessed with this film like i've always been like an animal lover so like when i was a young child i really liked the disney films that had animals in i i much preferred those to the the kind of princess films i had an older brother so this and jungle book and the lion king and and some of the other films that that come a bit later we were the ones that we really really watched because we we could both enjoy those together and we still watched all the other ones as well, but this was definitely one that was in like heavy rotation. And I I think because it got a re-release in the 90s and also because of the, the live action came out in 96, I like for the longest time thought that this film came out in the 90s. So <laughs> yeah, which I thought with a lot of them just because that was when I watched them. And I think when you're a child, you obviously don't understand, you know, cinema release dates and that sort of thing until a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, But it was probably honestly like into my teen years when I realized that this film came out in 1960 and I was like, what? (laughs) I just didn't believe it. That is fifth. Oh, 60, almost 60 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And it just, I mean, we've said this a lot and I will continue to say it, but it just goes to show like the, the, the lasting power of these films, really, that it doesn't matter that they, you know, even the ones that came out in the thirties, forties, like, some of them, yes, they have aged, you know, in terms of content and everything else. But in terms of how they look and the storytelling, like that sort of thing never ages. And this film, I think because it's one of the more contemporary ones in terms of its setting, like I said earlier, it does it does 
feel still like feels like kind of modern and and refreshing even though it is you know set in the 60s and and Mm -hmm. that is you know a a relatively long time ago but it's it's i think that it's still recognizable like the locations it be in london as well i think i'm sort of like oh i i i recognize parts of that you know i've i've been to regent's park i know what london looks like and it's even though it's a very different picture of london it's it feels more kind of it doesn't feel like it's set in that time if that if that makes sense mm-hmm. um but yeah i i could see this being one that features eh, pretty high in my in my top uh 10 or 5 when we come to when we come to doing it maybe we should we'll save that for like the final episode when we kind of like redo yeah. our top 5s or something cuz we did it on the first episode so that'll be fun to to bring back and see if it changes but if this doesn't make top 5 it will absolutely 100% be in my top 10 um, 101%. Yeah, 101%. <laughs> I see what I, um, did that. I will say, for those who are like, these two like every Disney movie, <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> for, like, for quite a while after this, I don't think there's too many good ones in the next uh, three, two decades. Uh, <laughs> so it'll be interesting. I, I don't think any, well, that's not true. A couple of them I really don't like, or at least I didn't like the last time. Maybe it'll be different this time. Uh, but generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of greatness. That does not mean you shouldn't tune in because there's a lot of really interesting ones mm-hmm. uh, that have, I think, will be privy to some really great discussions. So I'm I'm very excited to get into them. Uh, but this is a pretty, uh, I don't want to say mediocre. Well, I will. Mediocre period, I think after 101 Dalmatians, although there are definitely flashes of, of wonder. Um, yes. And even the ones that are bad, or I don't even know if there's any that are bad, but not as good, are still very interesting, while perhaps another period in time has just some flat-out awful ones that mm. are irredeemable. Um, but we'll we'll get there <laughs> when we get there. I think there's a lot of, of, of fun to come. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, maybe the film that we're doing next week, we might be slightly less positive but that maybe that is a, a reason to true. tune in yeah <laughs> people like our rants as well i can't remember when was the last film that we properly had a rant on oh fun Peter and fancy Pan. free uh yeah but yes the, well the only one i think that we truly hated is fun and fancy free yeah that's what i was thinking obviously like we we kind of like went in on the problematic stuff in peter pan of which there is lots um but yeah, I think Fun and Fancy Free was the one where we were just like, no, we do not like this. <laughs> so it's been a little while. So maybe we'll maybe we'll have some of that uh, coming back in the next few weeks. We shall see. Some um, fun times to come. Some fun times ahead for sure. Um, very, very quickly. Do you uh, have any thoughts, feelings or otherwise on the on the adaptations, the live action or the sequels? I have not seen the sequels. I have seen the live action. Um what do you um, what do you think very quick the sequel is like 101 dimensions 2 like patches lucky adventure or patches london adventure or something like that i don't remember <laughs> it i absolutely have seen it uh but i i couldn't really tell you whether i, I liked it or not i doubt it it's probably not very good like most of the straight to dvd uh disney sequels um i have seen both 101 and 102 dalmatians with glenn close who is amazing as carla deville yes she which is. is the one where she gets like dumped in manure that is uh, 101 Dalmatians. Okay, that film is great. Yes, it is. <laughs> At least Young Me liked it. I have not... Uh, they're on Disney+, Plus, so I, I might give them a go. Mm, I probably won't, but I might, because uh, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to see what they do with the story, because I don't really remember them. Uh, but mm. I did watch them a lot as a kid, uh, and yeah. I liked them a lot. 
yeah, they they came out at like a really good time in kind of like peak Dalmatian obsession era for me. So the I can remember seeing the first one at the cinema. I would have been five when it came out. So that was mm. like perfect for me. And I think we like we all went as like a family as well, because it's that proper kind of like family film you could all enjoy. Um yeah. I do I do actually really like the <laughs> the, the 101 Dalmatians, the the 96 one. So I, I'm keen to rewatch it soon because like you, I, I don't think I've watched it probably in about ten years, so I don't know how it holds up. Yeah. But I can remember the cast being being really good in it and not just, hasn't it got like um Hugh Laurie is uh Horace or Jasper and I don't I don't remember uh, anything except for Cruella Deville being dumped in Menor. Okay. <laughs> so your memory is uh is it's slightly worse than mine on this. I'm just gonna check. Close, it's probably been close to like fifteen years or twenty years since I've seen it. Okay, like have have a listen to this cast. I mean, this is pretty good. It's like the who's who of kind of British talent, and and for the most part. But um, so Glenn Close is Cruella Deville, obviously amazing. Jeff Daniels, Jolie Richardson, Joan Plowright, Hugh Laurie, Mark Williams. Like it has a it has a genuinely really good cast. So yeah, it Hugh does. Laurie and Mark Williams are um Horace and Jasper, and I can remember being very entertained by them um when i was younger it adds some i feel like it adds enough extra on cruella without adding too much so it kind of it she's like this um fashion mogul i think she owns like a fashion company or something which anita works for so it does it adds a little bit more context without kind of giving her like a tragic backstory or like a gritty reboot you know framing or anything it doesn't it doesn't have it doesn't do too much basically it does kind of just enough and i've just Mm -hmm. seen as well in the uh imdb page that uh john hughes was one of the writers on it as well i did not know that okay i would i'll definitely watch it then yeah i'm gonna Um, i might even rewatch it tonight as i'm all fired up and ready to watch some more there's a very good chance that it'll that'll also happen for me (laughs) i will i will say um i have learned uh from the wikipedia page that the horrifying prequel of cruella sequel whatever it is spinoff to come is coming apparently may 28 2021 so unfortunately soon (sighs) i mean I don't I don't want to say hopefully it gets delayed because I feel like every film at the moment is getting delayed but maybe they'll just rethink it and be like no this isn't something that we want. I remember I like that. I remember looking at some of like the concept images for it and like I don't know it doesn't it's I don't want it I don't need it and I would prefer it if it didn't exist. It just see Paul Paul Walter Hauser is going to be um Horace and I do want to see that. I don't want to see anything else. <laughs> oh, actually, no, I'm lying. I've just seen that Eileen Brush McKenna um originally wrote the script and she created Crazy Ice Girlfriend slash and she wrote uh Devil Rides Prada. So I am a little bit excited again. It it does have a good cast, like and and people behind else it. Revised the script. Oh no. The person who revised the script wrote Saving Mr. Banks and the Fifty Shades of Grey. So okay, I'm left excited. <laughs> Never mind. We're... I don't know. I don't know I don't know how to feel. Um, We're out again if... now. If McKenna has a, a strong presence in her, in, if her writing is mostly intact, then I'm very intrigued. Mm, yeah, I've got. I've. I mean, I have thoughts. Thoughts are plenty on uh, Disney live actions, but I just. I feel like we'll still be doing this podcast by the time this comes out, so maybe we'll be able to talk about it at some point in the future. 
That's a slightly worrying thought, but also (laughs) (laughs) it could very well be the case. Um, Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just I'm just looking at the picture for it now and it's got some real cute dogs in the picture. So I'm enjoying that. But then I can just watch the live action uh one with Glenn Close, which has Glenn Close in it and also cute dogs. So, you know, I don't I don't need this new version. (laughs) Okay. Um, Last thing I'll I'll say, we didn't mention it. This is film number seventeen in our journey. It is indeed. We we've come so far. We have a long way to go still, but we have still got some great films to talk about. And I am uh, looking forward to talking about next week's film. Me I too. think I, because I have maybe in my entire life watched it twice, mm-hmm. so it's not one that I've seen that often. Because spoiler, I don't really like it. But we shall see. Maybe maybe doing it this way maybe the kind of build-up we've had of watching all the other disney films prior to that that we'll see something magical and wonderful in it or maybe we won't we'll see i'm excited to find out yeah i'm I'm excited to find out okay let's let's get on out of here because i am melting so before (laughs) before we go before i melt into a puddle on my laptop keyboard um we of course want to mention our amazing patreons so uh they are Chris Wilson, Let There Be Light Productions, Zoe Baines, Daryl Griffiths, Sam Luck, Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, Nicole Potts, and Andy Meekin. And there are some names missing from my list because uh, I've clearly not updated it. But if you are one of those people that I am missing, I'm really sorry. I will update my notes. <laughs> um, I know there's two new people who have signed up recently and I can't get there quick enough to find your well, names. But next time you will get the shout out of your lifetime. I will just say their names 50 times in a row. <laughs> um, but yes, a huge thank you to our uh, patrons for their support. Um, and if you want to uh, support us in that way, then you can. You can find out how to do that on uh, Jump Cut Online. So make sure you do that. If you are a Patreon subscriber at any level, not just the top level, um, you get access to the uh, Jump Cut magazine, which by the time this episode comes out, I think might be out already. So that's exciting. Um, but if you sign up to become a Patreon right now, or like as soon as this podcast is finished, uh, then you will get access to the first issue, I believe, and the second issue and all the issues that come after that. So it is worth doing uh, for that alone. And that is that is about it, I think. So thank you, Barry, of course, uh, and Anya as well. I, th- I feel like I need to thank her for her contributions, uh, snoring away in the background. And I, not oh, that... I was, I was, can you can you hear it? Because it's quite loud. No, I can't hear her, but I know That's that she, I know that she's there, and her presence is always felt. Um, <laughs> so uh, do you have uh, well any anything final to say, or um, anything you want to plug, or where people Watch can this find movie. you? <laughs> watch the tang movie so good it is so fun it is so um if if for whatever reason you find uh the older disney films a bit stodgier and a bit uh stuffy mm. you're wrong but that's okay you might think that way um <laughs> 101 dalmatians is nothing like that and is a very uh feels very contemporary even now Mm. uh and and check it out it's if you've never seen it before you are in for a treat if you have seen it before you probably forgot a whole bunch of stuff about it uh and it's definitely worth revisiting um but you can find me on letterboxd at b levitt l-e-v-i-t-t and b levitt 93 on twitter 
Fabulous. And you can find me um, at Sarah Buddery and you can find all of us at Jumpcast underscore. You can check out all of our written reviews, features, interviews, news and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk and go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes. Uh, The next Jumpcast episode will be with you on Monday and we'll be back with a, a brand new Disney episode next Friday. See you then. 